You're listening to Strange New England. I'm your host, Tom Burby. A Light in the Barn I was ten years old when my grandfather died. He died in his sleep during the cold February night in Aroostook County with his rosary in his hands. My cousin had to break into the house on Sunday morning because Grampy never missed Mass, and today he wasn't opening the door. Larry found him under the covers, cold and still. The doctor told my father that his father had died peacefully, that he had simply fallen into a deep sleep and his heart slowed, and then eventually it simply stopped. My dad always said that he hoped that was how he would go, to fall asleep in one world and wake up in the next. Grampy's death was the second earliest one that I can recall. Grammy had predeceased him by five years, and it was during those intervening years that I got to know the old man. My grandfather, Vital, spoke French, used Pearson's red-top snuff, spoke very little, and worked very hard. He lived alone in the same little house he'd built in the 20s, heated only by a wood stove. And to say he didn't work would be a lie. He was retired. But he spent his time working hard, keeping himself busy living a life, I think, that would have been familiar to anyone born a century before. Every day, filled with vigor and purpose. He drew his water from a spring, used a scythe to reap the hay from his own field, and he cooked all of his own meals with a liberal use of salt pork and beans. He was a simple man who supported his family by working for all of the farmers his property bordered, but also by maintaining his own huge garden and had a huge barn and a small horse barn and a pigsty and a chicken coop. His house always smelled of wood and wintergreen molasses and roses. He had a farmer's almanac tied to a string hanging on a nail in the wall next to the telephone that he never used. He drank his water from a tin dipper kept in a pail covered with white muslin, still the freshest, clearest water I've ever had. After my grandmother passed, I asked my mother if I could go visit my grandfather alone, all by myself. We lived on the back Prescow Road in Caribou, Maine, in a part of the world that still felt new and untamed, still does for that matter. It was 1971. At seven years old, my mother gave me permission to visit him, possibly because of her own concern for the solitary state in which he now dwelt. I'd heard conversations on the phone between my father and his sisters, worrying about the fact that the old man was talking to thin air, addressing his wife, even though she'd gone and met her maker. My father wisely told his sisters not to concern themselves with his need to speak to the close and quiet darkness, because 
to be truthful, I spent entire days with the old man, during which he might have uttered only a dozen words. He's not hurting anyone, my dad said. And otherwise, he's fine. Leave him alone. And they did, more or less. I would tell my mother where I was going, and she would tell me to make sure I came home when I saw the porch light flashing, something she always did to summon my brother and I back to our evening meal, which was supper, never dinner. That was the thing. See, I could see my grandfather's house from the kitchen of our home. I had to look over Grampy's field and past his gray-boarded, tar-papered horse barn, a low-built, double-stall affair that hadn't seen a horse in my lifetime. If I looked in the falling dark, I could see her switching the light on and off. I even knew when the light was right, so I would know to look out for it. On the days when I visited my granddad, I would walk along the side of the road till I got there, and I'd just walk up to him, and he'd look over at me and nod. His youngest grandchild, without even a word, was there to help him. And we'd spend long hours just like that, just being together without much conversation at all. He'd answer me if I had questions, usually about fishing or axes or cows, because he still had one that often got loose and wandered through our garden. I had to work hard to talk to him. He was quiet by nature. Later in the day, he'd offer me molasses cookies that he'd bought at the store, and we'd watch Gunsmoke together on Monday nights, and then I'd walk home in the growing dark, and my mother and father would ask me how he was. You see, I was their emissary. I was very fond of my grandfather. He was good to me in a quiet way. And I'd help him by turning his whetstone wheel while he sharpened his axe, or I'd go inside and fetch his Pearson's red-top snuff, which he'd pinch and put between his gums and lips. Every now and then, as a man in my sixties, he's current in my mind, a living thought sandwiched there between old memories. I'm telling you all of this, though, because... Less than a year after he died, my grandfather began to haunt me. I never told anyone at the time. I knew it was a haunting. One of my earliest memories is that of my sister who woke the entire house up with her screams when I was five years old because she'd awakened to see my grandmother's spirit standing at the foot of her bed, watching her. And if my sister could be visited by a grandparent's ghost, why not me? There was also the idea that I didn't really know how to tell anyone what I was experiencing. Like most hauntings I've read about, it occurred to me, first, that I only ever saw my grandfather or his light when I was alone. I tried with all of my mind to find a reason for what I saw, but my 11-year-old mind simply couldn't find a thing to rest upon. My father and mother were very busy at the time anyway. Dad had just taken on a partnership and a business in town, and he was gone most of the time, and I never told my brother because I thought he'd think I was stupid. I remember the first time, though, that I saw the light in the barn.
It was twilight, and the orange-red of the sky was dying down to a level glow tinged with shadows. Late October, the cold of winter was already dancing around the edges of things. Puddles had margins from razor-frost ice. You could see your breath in the early mornings. I was alone in the house at the time. My parents had not yet returned from work, and I was setting the table. Must have been around 5.30. Our dining room windows looked out over Grampy's Field, a view I'd seen a thousand times before, waiting for the bus to come down Bucks Hill, watching for headlights or the smoke as it rose from the chimneys of the neighbors' houses. What caught my eye was a light where no light should have been. In the window of Grampy's small horse barn, a building never used, seldom entered, nearly forgotten. Even during his last few years, I had never seen him enter it. It was a place I entered only a few times in my life, a place forbidden by my father, no longer used with old hay and Cecil twine binding rope on pegs, old leather straps hanging, dust, memories. As I gazed at it, it seemed to glow steady and bright. I marveled at it for a moment, and when I couldn't think of any good reason on God's good earth why there would be a light there, my mind went elsewhere. Was someone inside? Surely not. But maybe? Couldn't be sure. I waited and watched, and my heart beat faster while my mind searched for something Anything, really, that would explain it, but I couldn't find an anchor to tie to my thoughts. And then my parents came home, and I debated whether or not I should tell them, and Mom made dinner, and when I sat down to eat, I looked in the direction of the barn, sheepishly, and there was nothing. No light, no sign of life, nothing. Had I imagined it? Maybe. Or... Perhaps I had been given a vision. One day flew past the next, and seeing no further indication of the light, I told myself I must have been mistaken. But then comes another early evening, and I'm again alone in the house, and then I see it again, as clear and bright as Polaris, a light in the window of my grandfather's barn, and I begin to put two and two together in my 11-year-old way. His speaking with my grandmother who had passed, my grandmother's ghost showing up to my sister, the loneliness of the vast landscape in which we lived, in my own 11-year-old vivid imagination, and I came to the unbearable conclusion that somehow, for reasons unknown to me, my grandfather was sending me a message. He knew I was alone in the house and that I'd be looking in his direction. And there was the light, a sign from beyond that he was still lingering. I stared at the old ramshackle barn for long minutes, my heart beating like a hammer in my chest, wondering what this meant and why. And then my mother's car drove into the driveway, and she came in and put her coat away, and when I looked again, 
the light was gone. It was a light just for me, I concluded. A message that only I could see. I did not know its meaning. As the days and weeks rolled by, I saw that light often, just at twilight, almost always when I was alone. Never, ever did I tell a soul about it. There was something personal in it for me, something meant for me and me alone, and I wanted to keep it that way. I loved my grandfather. I missed him, and if he was trying to send me a message, I wondered it must be a message of assurance and trust. What else could it be? I found myself thinking about him even more often, wondering exactly why he would do this. Was I supposed to understand the meaning of the light in the barn? Because I didn't. I could never tell when it would show itself or for how long. I mean, I even got to the point in the bleak midwinter of finding some small comfort in the fact that he had chosen me to contact. But I'll tell you something else. I never once went near that barn either, not since I started seeing the light. I entertained the thought of forcing my way in. It belonged to my aunt, but she lived in Boston, and she'd never know I'd trespassed. But I never went near, because I believed in my own heart that my grandfather's spirit dwelt now in that old place. And the last thing I wanted to do was encounter something from the other side, something that shouldn't be there, even if it was my grandfather. So I kept my distance. And as spring gave way to summer, I discovered much to my relief that the light in the barn ceased to glow. For all intents and purposes, it was gone. I confess that a small part of me missed it. Was my grandfather now truly gone? Was he in heaven at rest where he should be? One hot Sunday afternoon in midsummer when everyone else was busy and had forgotten that I even existed, I got on my green Schwinn banana bike and rode to his little house on the corner, owned now by my dad. It sat there empty because we were going to rent it out, and I tried my hand at the door, but it was locked. I climbed up the woodshed roof and then up to the roof of the back L and finally shimmied into an upstairs window and found my way in. And there I was, in the oppressive heat, walking the floors of the little house all by myself without permission. I was an intruder. I went from room to empty room. There was the old beige cabinet TV we watched together. It sat alone in the living room. I turned it on to see if it still worked. It did. And then I went into the kitchen. I opened every single one of the cabinets, and they were all empty and clean from a long day of my mother's hard work. I went into his bedroom, the one he had fallen asleep in and never woke up in, and I sat in a circle of warm sunlight on the hardwood floor and watched the dust float in a sunbeam as time itself seemed to stop. And then I realized why I was here in the first place. Without realizing it, I was looking for the old man. I was looking for my grandfather, or what remained of him. 
I had no idea how long I'd been there when I decided it was true that I was the only one there. The isolation of it, the emptiness of it, made me sad. I wandered into the living room. I found an old bronze knick-knack of a sailing ship that my grandmother got when she went to Old Orchard Beach once in her youth. I took it, and I stashed it in my pocket. And then I left the same way I'd gotten in, closing the window as I left. And I never told anyone about this until now. It's been my secret. I still have the sailboat. When autumn came and the nights grew almost intolerably long, I found to my surprise and my fright that the light was once again visible. For five nights in a row, I found myself not even wanting to look, but I forced myself anyway, and I saw it there, as clear as a fallen star from the sky. And now, I wanted to know more, so much more than I did. I was bolder than I'd been before, and I thought, if this is a sign from my grandfather, I need to get over my fear of the horse barn and go inside and maybe find out what he wants me to help him do so he could get his rest. I didn't know. I tried twice, and I failed, my heart failing me, my courage, a small bird in a cage, not willing to move one step closer. I rolled in my bed that night, unable to sleep. I could see him there in my mind's eye, sitting on a stool in the corner of the horse stall, his mouth considering a wad of snuff, his eyes squinting behind his glasses, and in my imagination, he was calling me over with his hand, motioning me to come nearer and nearer. When I did, I could see him moving his lips, trying to tell me something. He wasn't impatient or bothered, but no sound came from his mouth, and that made my skin crawl. I tried to stay in my mind. God knows I did, but even in my imagination, I ran. It was almost too much for a 12-year-old boy to bear, and this was not the kind of thing that could be real. It was something out of a Saturday afternoon matinee at the Powers Theater, not the reality of my life. I still hadn't told a soul. I didn't think I ever would. But there are moments in your life where the sudden realization of a simple fact changes everything. It's often something you should have known or seen all along, but you didn't, and you live in fear, or you suffer anxiety when you realize something so life-changing is in fact so simple so common. I was sitting in the darkness of the dining room in late October, staring again at the light in the barn, when my mother drove into the driveway. I'd heard her close the door of the Mercury and come into the house. I knew I had to leave the dining room. I didn't want her to know I was sitting there in the dark looking out the window. As I sat for one last moment, I heard her enter the house and then heard the click, the loud click, as she turned off the porch light that I had turned on for her not an hour before when twilight began to fall. The loud click of the switch was immediately followed 
by the disappearance of the light in the barn. Time stopped. I said hello to her, but my mind was racing too quickly to think. I, I flicked the switch to the porch light. I saw that it was on. I went back to the dining room. The light in the barn was back. I ran back to the switch and flicked it. Sure enough, the light was gone again. All of this time, in my imagination, I had been haunted by my parents' porch light reflecting in the window. The next day I found the courage to go to the horse barn, and I discovered that before he died, my grandfather had put a bright piece of tin behind the window that was facing our house. Positioned as it was, the angle of the light to the window of my dining room presented a perfect vector of fear as light was reflected back to my eyes from the tin through the glass and the porch light. I laughed in relief. I was happy, happy that I had suffered in silence and hadn't told anybody. But then I told my mother of my discovery, and she didn't laugh. She understood that I'd spent a good year wrestling with the supernatural all by myself. She never laughed at me, and I never told my father. So you see, the light in the barn was not the ghost of my grandfather haunting me. It was a trick of the light, a misunderstanding of the brain. I was young enough at 10 years old, 11 years old, to still believe in things I couldn't prove. In the years that have passed since, I recall that year of wonder with a kind of strange fondness because for a year, I felt my grandfather's presence often and unexpectedly. I still imagined that he was there with me as I stared out in wonder and some fear at the mysterious light in the barn. Perhaps he had been trying to tell me in my imagination when he spoke, but I could not hear him, that the light was just a reflection. But I suspect that I didn't hear him because I didn't want to. I didn't want to let him go just yet. And so I trapped his ghost in a window, and I held on to that light as a kind of hope, as a benevolent spirit in a lonely, sad world. The thing about seeing a ghost is that it's inexplicable. Those of you who know you've seen one, even if you've never told anybody, understand that deeply. Maybe you haven't seen a spirit, but perhaps you've felt it or heard it or simply knew it was there, and probably you were alone, and it caught you like a whisper in the dark, and you know you've experienced something uncommon, something from beyond, something on the edge, and you own it like a secret. And don't tell anyone, or perhaps only those whose trust you know will keep it safe. I thought I was haunted by my grandfather's ghost. And as I ponder it, Perhaps I was, in a way. Perhaps he was with me in spirit during that time. Since that time, I've had the occasion to witness three other moments when I encountered something that defied explanation, 
So perhaps I'm prone to believe in such things. Or like my good friend Paul says, I'm sensitive and simply refuse to accept it. But since that time when I was 11 years old, I have been haunted not by ghosts, but by the possibility of ghosts. In a world where everything can be explained, even the simple reflection of a porch light reminds me that ghosts aren't real. So why do I keep searching for them? Why do I have the strongest hunch that they are real and explainable? I don't know. But when darkness falls and I look out into the world from my window, even now I see phantoms on the wind. I hear them calling, and I know that though I can't prove they're there, nevertheless, they are. If ghosts are merely memories or thoughts of those who've passed, then it's as much a part of the human condition to wonder about them, about what comes after the last breath and sunset, as it is to seek to explain them away with logic and science. I am haunted still. I think I always will be. You've been listening to Strange New England, and I'm Tom Burby, your host. Please visit us at strangenewengland.com so you can listen to over 50 episodes that are archived there for your use. The music from this episode was composed by Jim Burby, except for the music that was composed by MyU, M-Y-U-U. Please check him out on SoundCloud and YouTube. He's a very talented German musician who offers much of his music free of charge for your listening pleasure. Audio engineering was done by Jim Burby, and we invite you again to join us soon.